There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. And today we're going to dig into speculation versus investing and also tackle the efficient market hypothesis. And we hope to accomplish all this in 30 minutes or less. Or it's free, as the pizza ad says. We've mapped out what messages we want to deliver on these podcasts, and we've created sort of an evolutionary map to the information that we're presenting in each episode. As such, the previous podcasts that we hope you've enjoyed included asset allocation and diversification strategies in hopes to reduce risk without affecting expected returns. We also talked about the evolution of investment management that included individual stock selection and portfolio construction, and that led us into the history of stock picking and using fundamental analysis. So today is just another step in that evolution of information. So Greg, today, why don't we get into speculation and what it is and how it differs from actually investing? Sure. As we've talked before, and I believe it was in episode four, we talked about the concept of when you pick a stock, there's two possible outcomes. One is to get rich and the other is to lose everything. And speculation is essentially making a bet on either an individual company or maybe a bet on an individual sector of the economy. So it's not exactly like gambling, because there may be some fundamental reasons why a particular company has strong prospects, or why you might believe that a particular sector of the economy has strong prospects as well. For example, being in Alberta, the energy sector at various times in our history has seemed to be something that had a lot of potential going forward. But as we've seen, that doesn't always work out, and we're certainly in one of those periods now. So the problem seems to be when you speculate, you tend to end up with concentration issues in the portfolio or lack of diversification. And when that happens, you can have unexpected or extraordinary losses, despite our best intentions. So the other problem when we look at these concentrated or speculative positions is how were those positions chosen? For example, did the investor choose that particular stock or did the stock choose the investor? And what I mean by that is for a lot of speculators or investors who behave like speculators is they end up picking a stock that's jumped out at them from the news headlines in the newspaper or on the business news or CNBC or BNN or something like that. And so this is not a stock that they've done in-depth research on. It's just a stock that attracted their attention, usually because it's gone up a lot in value. And so people end up speculating on something that already maybe has had its run. So speculation can be a short-term strategy for people that enjoy that gambling-like aspect, but it makes it really difficult if you're trying to put together a long-term investment strategy because it requires a lot of active trading. You've got to be willing to accept losses. You've got to be willing to capture gains when they're available, and you might need a lot of luck to be successful in that. An article came out a few years ago about this, and it's posted at, I believe it's at usfunds.com, and they give some good examples of what an investment is versus what a speculative investment is. So in their example, they talk about things like time horizon, level of risk, investor attitude, the decision criteria, 
et cetera. And what they looked at was the difference between you know investing in the stock market, bonds, U.S. treasuries, various mutual funds. Those would be kind of falling under the investment title. But speculation would fall under things like startup companies, options, futures, cryptocurrencies. So I guess some real life examples we could give right now focus around things like weed stocks and Bitcoin. How many people have come to us and not right now, but maybe in the last year and talked to us about various weed stocks that they're investing in and they talk about them like there's fundamentals behind these companies, but there's no earnings behind these companies. So there can't really be any fundamentals. So this behavior, as you pointed out, is that get rich or lose everything type of mentality. And it kind of reminds me a lot of a job I had in university. As you like to point out, I had a few jobs over the years before finding my calling. Just a few, yeah. But back in university, I worked at a brew pub. A great job when you're in university, by the way. And we had video lottery terminals in this brew pub, or VLTs as they were called. And every day we'd have these regulars that would come in and they would gamble all day. And they would drop in a loony or a toonie at a time with the hopes of winning $1,000. And they would always point out to me when they won that $1,000. But what they maybe didn't realize or want to admit was that I knew they spent $2,000 to win $1,000. And the most you could ever win was $1,000. And quite often after they won the 1000 what do you think they did? Pour it back in, I'm assuming. Well, that and maybe even a bit more because <laughs> now they got to win it back. So, you know, when we're talking about speculation as gambling, I guess that's the type of behavior we're talking about is that they're trying to make up for something, talking passionately about things that maybe they don't quite understand, like startups, penny stocks, weed stocks, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. And this actually is a generational thing too, because some of our older generations might talk about these things as they refer to gold or silver or, you know, no-brainers. Exactly. And it's interesting, you know, when you're talking about cryptocurrencies or weed stocks, for example, when you look at what's happened with weed stocks now, of course, there was this original, what I'll call the speculative bubble, when it was apparent that cannabis was going to be legalized in Canada. And of course, any company then that started up with the word cannabis in its name or weed in its stock symbol went up on speculative fervor. So, People were really excited about the prospect. And the interesting thing is the intention and the goal of investing in weed stocks wasn't wrong. They were absolutely right that obviously if cannabis becomes legal in Canada, it's going to become an industry that didn't exist before. But what was wrong was that these stocks got bid up so high, well beyond any fundamental value that when it became apparent that these companies weren't going to have earnings that justified the high valuations, the prices dropped fairly dramatically. And so even when you speculate, you might be right with the long-term idea, but wrong on the actual investment. So as we're looking to build investment portfolios, we do need to identify whether the objective is to attempt to score big wins in the short term or to create an investment plan that will achieve some long-term goals that might be things like retirement, education, savings, leaving a legacy, charity, that kind of thing. So, But Craig, won't most investors just say, yeah, but I want it big in the short term, and then I'll worry about the long term? I think they will, but it's our job to help people separate those two from each other, meaning that, listen, if we're trying to set up a long-term goal through a financial plan or what have you, we need to build an investment strategy that we can stick with through ups and downs in the markets and that kind of thing. 
And there may well be a place for speculation if people want to, for fun, you know, take a small amount of their assets to use towards speculating. But I think we really need to help everyone identify what exactly the long-term goal is and keep your eye on the prize, as they say. So let's just assume that the risk of speculating is too high to expect it to reliably deliver the kind of returns consistently that we need over a long period of time. Then the question is, well, how do we build a more appropriate and diversified portfolio? And as we've been going through our evolution of investments and some of the innovations in finance that started way back that we've covered in previous podcasts, one of the answers to how to build a better, more diversified and longer term oriented portfolio comes in the form of mutual funds. So it turns out the first mutual fund was created back in 1924 in the U.S. And the first Canadian mutual fund actually started up in 1932. Are they still around? Through different name changes, surprisingly, the Canadian fund is still around. Oh, wow. But the reason why mutual funds were valuable is they offered investors with modest capital the ability to invest more broadly in the stock markets by hiring a professional manager and pooling resources so they could own a portion of a much better diversified portfolio than they could build on their own. And so to this day, the mutual funds remain a better option for most investors than building a small stock portfolio of their own. Would that be like getting back to that gambling example you were talking about? Instead of betting on one hand in the casino, you're pooling all of the hands together and betting against the house somehow? It would be similar to that, with the exception that with gambling, of course, it's still a matter of luck and the results will be based on luck. In the case of investing in stocks for the long term, there is an expectation that over time, stocks will go up as the economies of the countries we're investing in, as they grow and companies' earnings proceed. And so, as we've talked about in the past on some of these podcasts, certainly a larger and more diversified portfolio is better from a risk standpoint than a smaller number of individual holdings. So mutual funds did fill a very important role in the evolution of investments and investing products. And as I say, to this day, they remain a better option for most investors than building a small stock portfolio. But we'll talk more about some of the drawbacks of traditional mutual funds in our next podcast episode. But one of the things I want to move into now is just the whole discussion of one of the major innovations in finance that emerged in the mid-1960s, and that is the concept of efficient markets. This has been discussed in academic papers that actually you can date back to the early 1900s. But ultimately, it was work done by a couple of economists in the mid-1960s, Paul Samuelson, and then by a doctoral thesis and subsequent papers by Eugene Fama in 1965 and 66 that brought the efficient market hypothesis into the mainstream. And Fama has since won a Nobel Prize in economics based on his work in securities pricing. And Fama is somebody we brought up in our last episode in our zero-sum game discussion. Fama is going to be referenced a lot through our episodes, most likely, because at the end of the day, he's just a pretty smart dude. And known as the father of modern finance. So some of his work, and certainly the work on efficient markets, basically tells us that assets are priced today based on all of the information that's currently available about them. And so given that this large group of investors that are buying and selling stocks all day have come to agree on the prices, then those prices do reflect fair value. Mispricings might occur in the market, but they're rare 
and they evaporate almost immediately with the speed of information. So as soon as any new information comes around with regards to a company, that will be incorporated into the price of that stock immediately. And this is something we talked about in the last podcast regarding stock picking. Fama has referred to active management, or what you could call stock picking, as the zero-sum game, or in some cases the negative-sum game based on fees. And what that means, though, is basically that there has to be a winner for every loser, and it's simple arithmetic to explain that. The historical importance of what Fama did can't and should not be played down at all, as I mentioned, the father of modern finance, and certainly every student studying finance in the world studies Fama's past work. So pretty remarkable to stay relevant after four decades of work. Very remarkable. And in that efficient market hypothesis, they talk about three different levels, that being weak, semi-strong, and strong. Now, we would subscribe to the semi-strong efficient market hypothesis is what we believe in. But just to go through them, the weak form just basically says that current stock prices reflect all available information and that there's no relationship between price performance and the future. So basically saying that using technical analysis to achieve exceptional returns is impossible. Do I got that right? Yep. The semi-strong form would be that, listen, everybody's got access to all public information. And so that stocks, bonds, whatever it is, a house is priced based on all of the public information available to it. And the strong form is that not only do you have access to all the public information, but you have access to all the private information too. So private information is not really a reasonable expectation for us to have access to. So there are people out there that argue against the idea of market efficiency, and we've worked with some over the past. Motley Fool put out an article recently talking about this idea of market bubbles and crashes. And in it, they state that the market can't really be efficient. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had the housing bubble or the stock market crash of 2008. I find this to be an interesting argument. And Fama does as well, because he's quoted sort of replying to this idea that that bubbles can occur. And in the Harvard Business Review, he simply replies, listen, if you interpret the word bubble to mean I can predict when prices are going to go down, well, you just can't do it. Now, there's another Nobel laureate that we've mentioned and is close to this discussion, Bob Schiller. And Bob Schiller describes bubbles like a mental illness. And he says there's actually a checklist for symptoms. And the checklist would be something like this. Number one, rapidly increasing prices. Number two, people tell each other stories that purport to justify the bubble. And number three, people feel envy and regret they haven't participated. Where I find this comes into real life, Greg, is... I remember years ago being in the back of a cab and having the driver tell me what stock I should invest in. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was good tech bubble days, yes. That was sort of a red flag. But, you know, carrying on with this Motley Fool article, they do also mention things like there are people out there that have had incredible success that they say sort of contradicts the idea of efficient market hypothesis. They point to people like Warren Buffett and say that his value investing is something that has led to some exceptional returns. And value investing is something we're going to discuss in a future episode. But in our past episode, we also talked about Bill Miller, and we pointed out how he beat the S&P 500 15 years in a row in regards to returns, only to give all 15 years back in year 16 because of the global credit crisis. Well, for sure. And when you were talking about bubbles, you know, relating back to, say, the tech bubble back in the late 1990s, 
It's interesting because a lot of the argument is, well, how could prices have gone so high, breaking away from any true underlying fundamental value if it wasn't a bubble or if markets were efficient? And again, as Fama would probably argue that, well, you didn't know you were a bubble when you were in it and the prices seemed fair at the time. And it was only later when people realized that there was no way that these companies were going to have earnings that justified their high prices. And everybody finally realized that, that the prices then adjusted. So he's looking back at what happened. That's right. And again, his points usually have to do with how well could you predict the future of prices based on today's prices. So how does that lead into behavioral biases then? Behavioral economists are major critics of the efficient market hypothesis, exactly for those reasons. The concept of behavioral finance, first of all, is just that behaviorists believe that traditional finance is based on the rational man, and therefore that it's based on the idea that people will behave rationally in all situations. And behavioral economists believe that people are human and therefore will not behave necessarily rationally in all situations, but they will just exhibit some of the normal human biases that they're susceptible, one of which, which mutual fund companies, of course, have to remind people all the time, is that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Okay, and that's just a typical bias that people have when they tend to look for investments. They look at what's worked well in the past and try to assume that that will continue to work well in the future. It's actually called the recency bias, and it's one of the very common behavioral biases. And what happens, though, is that the behavioral economists believe that biases can lead to mispricings in stocks and therefore create opportunities to either benefit from those or, unfortunately, for the people that exhibit those biases, they may do poorly as a result. And we will be spending, this is a very big area of economics right now, we'll be spending a reasonable amount of time in future episodes talking about behavioral biases. Yeah, and who is it at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business? I mean, you have, of course, Gene Fama there. Who's the behavioral guy? Of course, there's many Nobel laureates at University of Chicago, but it turns out that Richard Thaler right. is a behavioral economist at University of Chicago, who also just won a Nobel Prize for his work in behavioral economics. And he happens to be a very close friend of Eugene Fama, and they golf together, <laughs> despite the fact that the primary role of behavioral economics in the work of Richard Thaler is to disprove the work of Eugene Fama and efficient markets. So it just proves you can get along even if you have differing points of view. <laughs> and some of the things, when you look at some of the arguments with regards to behavioral economics versus efficient markets, it's kind of like when you meet someone who tells you the earth is flat. What? You know, and there's lots of evidence, obviously, to prove that the earth is not flat. But from where you or I are standing, it certainly looks flat. You know, and so we have to look at all of our opinions about how stocks behave and how bonds behave based on evidence. You know, and that's the way we approach this. We try to base all of our recommendations on information we have available today. The news of tomorrow is unknown and prices for securities will adjust when that information becomes available Likewise, our approach to investing may change if new information becomes available. However, at this point, we're very strong believers in a lot of the concepts that have come out of Fama's work with efficient markets. What does all this mean? Good question. I mean, we've gone through quite a bit here. Speculation, gambling versus investing, and what that is. Now, listen, these are our own opinions, and these are our own beliefs. 
we should have prefaced that at the beginning of each of these shows, by the way, Greg. But to us, there's nothing wrong if you want to speculate on a specific stock or position like you mentioned earlier. You just have to accept the risks or the outcomes or the range of outcomes. And that, look, investing in a broadly diversified portfolio obviously reduces those concentration risks, gives you maybe a wider subset of outcomes so that you're not so get rich or lose everything. And that, in our opinion, the semi-strong form of efficient market hypothesis exists. And it doesn't exist just in the stock market. It exists in kind of all markets. So whether it's buying a stock, a bond, a house, even I would argue things like cars or clothes. I mean, there has to be some way of setting a price based on the information that's available on that item you're looking to buy. So this is actually obviously very counterintuitive to the movie Wall Street that I like to bring up in our episodes. I don't believe that Bud Fox or Gordon Gecko would fall into this camp, but it's our belief. Absolutely. And I think as we continue on in our next podcast episode, we're going to be looking more at if markets are efficient, what does that mean for constructing investment portfolios? You know, and it just is a way of moving along our understandings of how markets behave and how we can capitalize on the ways market behave in order to invest with the lowest risk possible for the best return that we can within those risk parameters. So I'm looking forward to our next episode where we'll be talking about active versus passive investing. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Now, before we wrap up, just a couple of other fun items I wanted to share with you. I am almost done Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. To celebrate... I've started reading another book by Dan Harris called 10% Happier. And I can tell you, Greg, I am already 10% happier by being almost done Wealth of Nations. (laughs) That's great news. That's quite an accomplishment when you finish that. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today on The Free Lunch. Next week, as you said, Greg, we're going to be talking about active versus passive in regards to investing, the introduction of exchange-traded funds or ETFs, and maybe even a few other items. Sounds great. Look forward to it, Colin. Okay, thanks. Till next time. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.